I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Happy New Year! Welcome back to the Nature Jobs Podcast. I'm Julie Gould. In this episode, we're exploring two different changes in careers in science. A move from academic research to something else. PhDs in science are happy across the board in a variety of sectors. They're enjoying their jobs. And that's data that I try to share with the trainees. And a retirement from a long, successful career in academic science. A lot of the people who I talk with tell me, I'm really afraid that if I close the lab, I'm just going to go home, turn on the television, sit on the couch and, and pass away. I don't know if you noticed, but the year started on a Monday. So you had a new week, a new month and a new year all in one go. And hopefully a very refreshed you for some great adventures in science. But many of these new adventures start by taking a leap of faith. And these leaps often, although very exciting, can cause a little bit of uncertainty and worry in some, especially when it comes to leaving academic research earlier on in the career track. Because for many, often the shift is unplanned. If we look back at the 2017 Nature Graduate Student Survey, which came out at the tail end of last year, of more than 5,700 surveyed science PhD students, 75% had said that they wanted to pursue a career in academic research. But, sadly... There aren't enough academic research jobs for all of those science PhDs. A 2015 analysis of the biomedical sciences estimated that for every tenure-track position there was in the US, there were 6.3 PhD students being trained. But just because you might not end up as a tenure-track scientist doesn't mean that you're wasting your time doing a PhD. Melanie Sinch, who's the Director of Education at the Jackson Laboratories in the US, has spent some time doing research on transferable skills and job satisfaction in science. And she published her work in PLOS One at the tail end of last year. But she discovered that actually anyone who has a PhD, whether in academia or not, 
is actually very satisfied with what they're doing. Because I'm trained as a counselor, I see many trainees in counseling appointments, and they sometimes will share that personally they feel a sense of loss uh, or a sense of, of guilt or a sense of um, not using all of their education and training for what they were ultimately in engaged in training um, for. And what I try to do is help them to break down that myth by recognizing all that they have accomplished. And I try to help them recognize that they have so much to contribute to society, to the economy, in lots of different ways, in lots of different occupations. And typically people will start to open up and see that they do have a variety of skills, a diversity of skills that they can apply uh, in a job that will be fulfilling. And that's the other piece that we found in my research. We found that of all of those PhDs who are employed outside of tenure-track positions, uh, this is in our sample of just over 8,000 PhDs, 80% are satisfied with their jobs. And so people are happy, PhDs in science are happy across the board in a variety of sectors. They're enjoying their jobs. And that's data that I try to share with the trainees to encourage them to, to let go of that guilt. And did you look at all into what was the, I guess, the cause or the, the drive behind such a high level of satisfaction? Yes. Um, so I asked questions in our survey about um, activities at work, and that's another eye-opening statistic that I can share today. Of all of the PhDs who are out in the workforce across all sectors, 75% are currently engaged in research in some way. So regardless of the type of job, Three out of four trainees who are in the workforce today are conducting research, um, and, and that has led to great satisfaction. Um, and one out of three in the group is teaching in some way. And I think that, again, crosses all different kinds of positions. So, for example, if a trainee is working in regulatory affairs, they may be teaching or training other people about regulations for um, bringing a drug to market. And so there are a lot of different ways in which um, people achieve that satisfaction. Is that why they are not having these feelings of guilt because they don't feel like they are leaving behind all of their training and not using it to its full potential? Well, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. They're recognizing that their training was not uh, all for naught, that they have trained indeed and are able to use their strong research skills. Uh, another career path that several of our PhDs have moved into is consulting. And in consulting, you're given the role of researcher, really, that you have a very short period of time typically to conduct research, gather information, interpret data, distill information and communicate a message to your client in a very short period of time. And that is something that PhD trainees excel at. What started off this research? Why did you decide to do this? I actually have worked with PhDs and postdocs for about 20 years and have always heard the same kinds of questions and sentiments in my counseling appointments. And those were uh, I have no skills, I am no good at anything but my particular project, and I have nothing of value to offer employers in different uh, areas, or I've been on the job market for years and I'm not securing a faculty job and I don't know what else is out there. 
Um, and I don't know whether people are happy in their jobs. And so, you know, we have access to some data uh, across the globe on where PhDs end up, but what spurred my research in conducting the survey was uh, the questions that arose in my counseling appointments and sort of a dearth of really granular data, so more specific information on where are PhDs ending up and what are their job titles and what do they do all day at work and are they satisfied? And if they're satisfied, why are they satisfied? And so it was a pleasure to design the survey instrument and distribute that to PhDs across the globe and to collect information on where people are ending up and why they chose the careers they did. Were there any trends that you saw that were country-specific? Um, I would say outside of the U.S., people seemed um, even more focused on faculty positions. When I looked at the question around um, what career were you striving for at the outset of your Ph.D. or at the beginning of your postdoctoral training, um, so I was struck by the number of people outside of the U.S., um, proportionally, who were more interested in faculty careers than others. And was there any indication as to why? You know, so much uh, of our motivation, uh, and this was borne out in the survey data, um, is driven by location, by geography, right? So we, um, in the survey, we asked about motivation for accepting positions. And the number one reason that people accepted their jobs was for intellectual challenge, which was, again, a great indicator that people are being challenged intellectually across sectors. But the second reason was uh, for flexibility, flexibility on the job. But the third uh, motivator, top motivator, was geographic location. So I think largely because so many of our PhDs ended up in the um, academic sector, so of the entire sample, 49% are in the academic sector, I think what happens um, organically is that people who are in PhD-level training, people who are engaged in PhD programs or uh, in postdoctoral training, enjoy the academic life, they enjoy the academic environment and culture, and they tend to start to build relationships, put down roots, um, sometimes build families, and want to stay in the regions in which they're training. And so a natural um, outgrowth of that in terms of career goals is then a faculty position at their university um, where they're training. And so that seems to be one of the driving factors um, is geographic location and wanting to stay in the academic environment. Thank you very much to Melanie Sinch for sharing her research insights. And you can read more about her research in PLOS One. So from changing career track, well, to changing career track, just because you come to the end of one part of your working life doesn't mean it needs to stop altogether. And after 35 very successful years of running the Coulter Lab at Harvard Medical School, Roberto Coulter has officially become Professor Emeritus and will in the summer of this year, closed the doors of his lab for good, coincidentally timing it with his 65th birthday. But that doesn't mean that this is the end of his involvement in science. Actually, it's very far from it. When I arrived in, in 83 at Harvard Medical School, the last thing from my mind was that I would be at Harvard Medical School for 35 years. In fact, at the time when one took an assistant professorship there, 
the chances of getting tenure, we all knew, was very small. So I saw it as, well, I'm not so sure what I want to do for the next three years. So I said, wait, why not go there for a few years and then I'll figure out what I do. If you look back at some of the stuff that your lab has produced, have there been any particular favourite pieces of research? Just before getting tenure in the early 90s, we were looking at the dynamics of stationary face populations. And that was such an unexpected finding for us that I still keep it as one of my absolute favourites. The, the whole entry into the biofilm field uh, and doing being among the first to do genetics, focusing on biofilm formation. And that was really exciting because it just revealed a whole new world. And I think I'm very excited about that primarily because of the impact it has had in so many other people being influenced by that work. You're talking about biofilms. I mean, you very, very recently have had a, a lot of interesting stuff going on there, especially with the work you've done with Scott Chimileski and your new book that you've just had published. I'm really, really happy about that piece of work. That, of course, being a compilation of images and text that covers a very broad aspect of microbiology. I'm, I'm, I must say, not being primary research, I didn't think of it as, as one thing, but what a better way to close my lab than with that as a, it's almost like uh, announcing that this is a new area that I probably will stay on, science, communication, etc. So, so I think that that is one of the key things. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I want to pursue, and I think it's an important role that we as sort of more, it's called the elder statement of the discipline, can really provide as a, as a wonderful contribution. All right, so before we talk about your future plans, I'm keen to know mm-hmm. why you've actually made the decision to close down your lab. First of all, I think that the uh, opportunity that I have of branching out onto other things is remarkable. I've gotten very excited, as I said, about uh, communicating science to the, to the public. The fact that I look back at 35 very nice years and also the fact that I'm successful in funding has made me think a lot about the dynamics of our discipline and the number of people that were training. And I look, I've trained 120 plus scientists, most of them still practicing science, maybe a good 50 of them are holding faculty positions. And if they were to have similar paths as mine in the future, that would mean a, a remarkable exponential growth in the number of people trained. And, and I think as a consequence, I believe that it's good to stop training people at some point so that the people want trained can go on to do their job. And so I felt it was right in that regard. I imagine with someone who has many successfully funded projects running in their lab, it takes some time to close this all down. So what sort of planning did you have to do in order to you know, wind down all the work that you do? So I knew already when I did my, my last four-year renewal for my biofilm grant, at the time I had three uh, major grants going, and so I had to stagger their ending so that I could do a slow landing of fewer and fewer people in the lab, stop accepting new fellows, but still finish the project. The plan had to be set in motion, so that meant five years ago I had to make the decision and know a priori when I would be 
uh, accepting my last postdoc, et cetera, et cetera. So it wasn't the thing that I said, okay, in six months, everybody gets fired <laughs> and I go, right? Well, thank Cannot goodness. Like that that would have been slightly brutal. <laughs> exactly. So I think as a consequence, people who have worked with me and the three people who remain in my lab, I'm trying to make sure that everybody is able to land the job that they want, etc. So it takes time, takes planning to do it, I think, to do it correctly. You're very happy about the idea of retiring and, and as you've mentioned, you're, you're keen to pursue other things. There are many scientists of, of your generation who aren't as keen to hang up their lab coats and close down their labs. They enjoy what they do, they're successful and they think, well, why not continue? I can carry on training scientists and create more research. What is your view on that sort of attitude to retirement? Okay, so this is, this is a personal perspective, but I think a lot of that view is based, and, and many of my colleagues admit to this, is based on the fact that science, that at, at the level that, that we practice it, so intense, it becomes, it becomes a 24-7 thing. It really is all-consuming, and it does give you a great, uh, I guess, a, a rush of adrenaline because you're doing really well. But it also gives you a sense of, since it's all-encompassing, many of them live and breathe science with such a passion and such a complete taking of their lives that when it comes to being 70 years old, say, and they're saying, what should I do? The only comfort zone is that lab and that research. I think that's sort of, it's, it's a shame because there's so much to life that one should be as varied as, as possible. In fact, I think science benefits from having many, many, many other interests. But I do believe that a lot of the people who I talk with tell me, I'm really afraid that if I close the lab, I'm just going to go home, turn on the television, sit on the couch, and, and pass away, right? Because they haven't really explored many other things. So since many of the people who are in your audience are young, my strong advice or plea is that people really develop a multitude of interests. Because I think it will benefit their science right then and there, but also will make the concept of retiring a very appealing one. How are your fellow scientists, so those, your colleagues, how are they reacting to your closure? Many people interpret my retirement, and some of them have said, as an attack on their own decision not to retire. And some people have reacted uh, negatively, that uh, by encouraging this, I am or in some way preventing the growth of knowledge uh, because such great scientists are well into their 60s, 70s, 80s, right? So that uh, they get a fair amount of resistance. So what do you say to these colleagues who aren't as accepting of your decision? Well, I tell them that they should really think about why it is that people are not retiring and the fact that, yes, if they retire, there's going to be great science that doesn't get done, but also that might give space to the people earlier in the career to generate great science that is not being done now because there's a tightness at the top. The other thing that I say is that maybe they should think about is, it, is that concept that they have uh, a feeling that they are irreplaceable and, and I think we're all replaceable. <laughs> and uh, it, gets, it gets sometimes heated, but I think we benefit from this kind of discussion. Absolutely. And I'm certainly not... I'm not recommending that everybody needs to retire when they reach a certain age because everybody has to find the right time and, uh, and, and the right reasons. 
So you're going to be officially closing your doors in August 2018, a bit later in the year. What is next for you? I will still oversee the progress of those three people as they go on uh, searching for the next jobs. Scott being still in the lab and our many projects, we're hoping to begin to write another book. Who knows when that will be done? And then many things. We have a, a, an exhibit in the Harvard Museum of Natural History opening February 15th uh, on microbial life. So I will be involved in seeing that uh, exhibit to completion and then seeing it operating. And I'm developing a, a course entitled Invisible Chefs. And it's basically all about how microbes are involved in many of the foods that we eat. And that's supposed to launch in the fall. I am hoping to uh, do many lectures over the year on, on science communication. You may or may not be familiar with the fact that I've been for the last year involved in the blog, Small Things Considered. So I imagine my blogging frequency will increase and I'll be training for three or four triathlons in 18 if my health uh, stays the way it is. Out of all I, of that, that's three or four triathlons. <laughs> oh, it makes me feel exhausted. Goodness. And Roberto, I wish you all the best for your future, wherever it might take you. And um, I hope you will keep in touch with Nature Jobs and uh, let us know how you get on. Julie, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks a lot for the opportunity. So those were the wise words of advice from future triathlete Roberto Coulter. And because Roberto mentioned his blog, Small Things Considered, we thought we'd mention that we will be looking at the value of a blog to researchers in a Nature Careers feature due out at the beginning of February. Now, along the lines of new beginnings, our first Ask the Expert question of the year comes from a master's student in India who's keen to start his scientific career abroad. Hello, I am Rahul Hazari and I am a master's student at Bhardwan University in India. I am hoping to continue my research in epigenetics in the USA or in Germany. But due to my financial situation, I am looking for economical support for living costs and research purposes. Why do I start looking? Thank you. To answer Rahul's question, I've asked Susan Marriott, professor at Baylor College of Medicine in Texas and president of Bioscience Writers, to give us an answer. So, over to you, Susan. To answer this question, I'd like to mention that uh, in the United States, most graduate programs in the biological sciences do provide a stipend for students who join their program. That means this stipend is available for the student and they, they receive it once a month or even every couple weeks when they're paid. Um, and it's to provide them enough money to live uh, while they're doing their graduate work. That means it covers the cost of housing usually. It also can cover cost of food and other costs of living so that the student can focus on doing their research and completing their graduate training. Um, and this isn't just true in the United States. I think many other countries also provide similar kinds of stipends from their universities, including Germany. Um, one thing to think about is when you're looking at graduate programs, the stipend that you will see is available can be different. So there's different amounts of money that come to students that are attending different schools or in different graduate programs. And the reason these are different usually is because of the cost of living in the city. So if it's expensive to live in a city, the school usually offers a higher amount of money. 
Um, and if it's a very inexpensive place to live, sometimes it's lower cost of money or amount of money. Um, in addition to the stipend that you get, oftentimes most graduate programs will provide health insurance that may cost a, no money for the um, trainee or some small amount of money. So really, there's if you are whether you're a um, local resident of the country or um, a, an international student coming into a program, there's a high likelihood that you will have opportunities to get these stipends. And when you apply for your graduate training, you can look at the website of the different graduate programs and see these stipend amounts and what they cover. Be careful on, don't just look at those that offer the highest stipend, because again, it's linked to the cost of living. And so you may be at a school that has a very high stipend, but it's so expensive to live there, you'll actually have less money to live on than in a less cost of uh, living city. So you need to compare those, and there's actually websites that will help you compare cost of living at a certain salary and see what's the best option for you. Thank you, Rahul Hazari and Susan Marriott, for this month's Q&A. And it's your turn now. If you've got a science career-related question that you would like us to find an answer to, then send them in. You can email us at naturejobseditor at nature.com, and we will do everything we can to try and find an expert to answer your question. But sadly, that's it for our first podcast of 2018. But don't despair, because we've got so much good stuff coming up in the rest of this year, including an interview with a mama of five PhD student. You know, having my husband being at home saying, okay, I want the last, like, (laughs) milk that you have in the freezer. And I'm like, I'm coming, like, I'm on the plane, it was delayed. You know, so those challenges... And, of course, don't forget that if you want to follow more of our adventures, then you can go to the Nature Jobs blog at blogs.nature.com forward slash naturejobs. You can follow us on Twitter at naturejobs and on Facebook. Thanks for listening. I'm Julie Gould. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.